1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest is Andrew Mellon. He's the founder and CEO of Declutter Your Show. Uh, he's the author of Calling Bullshit on Busy. So we're going to talk about uh, how to help people, I guess, become less overwhelmed and not so busy that uh, their head's falling off every day. <laughs> so welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be here. So Andrew, tell me a bit about your background, and how you got into uh, decluttering and, and simplifying your lives. You know, what led you to that? Sure.
2: Like many things in, certainly in my life and maybe uh, in your listeners' lives, you can relate to this. This was not a career path for me. I worked in the theater. My first career was working in the theater as a director and a producer and an actor. I mean, I started as an actor. And 27 years ago, I got laid off from a theater and I got a gig co-producing an award ceremony at the Kennedy Center. One of our awardees was a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and I went to his office to get some photographs and they were a mess. So in the process of pulling things together for that presentation at the Kennedy Center... He and his wife asked me if I wanted to organize their photographs for them. And I said, sure, that would be, it. sure. I mean, I need a job. I'm moving back to New York. It sounds great. I'm happy to do that. And we made a day for me to go to work. The day before I was supposed to go to work, their assistant called up, said something's come up. We need to reschedule. This happened three times. And on the, the third time which was really the fourth time, they said to me, when we're ready to proceed, we'll get back in touch with you. So I, in fact, never went to work with them. But over those four months, I told everybody I met, hey, I've got this amazing gig. I'm going to create a comprehensive photographic archive for a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And that led to other people referring me to people who didn't need organizing help. So a friend of mine referred me to her accountant. I built a filing system for the accountant. Then the accountant started referring me to clients of hers, and people would show up on my doorstep literally with a duffel bag full of receipts saying, I haven't filed my taxes in five years. I've got letters in here from the IRS. I'm freaked out. I i don't know what to do, but I'm really scared, and can you make sense out of this paperwork before something really bad happens? And I would. I would organize the receipts. I'd put everything into QuickBooks. I'd give it to the accountant. The accountant would file their taxes, and they, were, they would tell all their friends, you'll never believe I gave this guy a pile of garbage. He turned it into my tax returns. He's a genius. Hey, cool. And... And they would say, who is this guy? I need somebody just like that. And that was how my second career began. It was never, this was never a planned strategic move for me.
1: Well Why do you think that you're able to help people get organized and these people weren't able to help themselves like this psychology of? Well, I mean, I think I have a certain detached or dispassionate
2: approach to things. I don't think I'm a robot and I don't think that I'm, I mean, I think I have a high... EQ. And at the same time, first of all, it's not my stuff. So I don't really have a horse in the race. It's, it's easier to make sense out of things when you're just trying to solve a puzzle, right? Like, what is this like? Oh, this is another, this is another grocery receipt. This is another shipping and postage receipt. This is another mm. airplane receipt. So you're just playing a, a, a massive game of concentration. At least that was the very beginning of the work, right? Was what is this like? Put them all together, add them all up. And then the accountant can file your tax returns. So that was the very genesis of it. But I I have, as a director, when I was working in the theater you are solving a different puzzle. It's a more visual puzzle. It's also a verbal puzzle. The playwright gives you a script and you work together with designers, actors, uh, musicians to create something out of basically a word map that is in a book and you need to make it three-dimensional so that the audience actually has an experience when they come to the theater. So I do think that my training and my experience in solving puzzles, if you will, if making sense out of things that might seem seem disparate or random and finding the connections is something that I am both skilled at and probably have a natural inclination
1: towards. Hmm. And because it's not your stuff, the emotional component is not there. The, um, it's probably guilt, I would guess. Guilt, shame, Shame, embarrassment. Embarrassment. Yeah.
2: There's, there's lots of flavors of why people are stuck. Often it is shame, embarrassment, and there's fear, anxiety, which then manifests itself as stress. And when you're confronted with stress, you're going to choose to fight or flee. And if there's not a clear enough reason why you should fight this battle at this time, most people will choose to leave rather than dig in.
1: I guess it'd be, I know you're not, but it'd be funny if you were like a secret hoarder. You know, someone went to your house and it was like a horror. (laughs) I know. Yeah, I mean, I do. I eat my own dog food. And even though I just said
2: this thing about not having a horse in the race, even in my own home, I do have a horse in that race. I like order. I'm not a minimalist. I have things. And I know where everything is and I can find it in 10 or 15 seconds. It's not hard to find things. I I created or discovered the organizational triangle, which are basically three rules. One home for everything, like with like, something in, something out. This is the basis of my first book, Unstuff Your Life. One home for everything and like with like are the two legs of the triangle that we use to get organized. Something in, something out is the one leg of the triangle we use to stay organized. So one home for everything means everything has one home, only one home. Where you keep your keys can be different from where I keep my keys, but your keys have a home, my keys have a home. They can only be one of two places at any given moment, either in our hands, unlocking something, or in their home.
1: Yeah, like with me, my wife, oh. that and my daughters, you know, they lose things a lot. Like I tell them, my wallet, I only put it in one spot. I will not put it anywhere else. My keys, So I never lose them. Right? But they, they don't. They don't seem to uh, want to
2: hear that. Well, look, I mean, you have a primary relationship with them, so they're. <laughs> We could get into the dynamics of how dispassionately you're sharing a piece of advice with them or if you're scolding them or cajoling them in some way to get them to change their behavior, right? Chances are, for most people... And I I don't know your wife or your daughters. If they're not paying attention in the moment, if they are distracted, if they are attempting to multitask, they're not paying attention to where they're setting something down. It's not like I'm sure they're smart enough to remember if they would establish one home where that home is and to always put things back in it. For, for whatever reason, they don't. It could be because it's in opposition to you and it could be That's that true. they don't care. Right. No, it's hard it to know mean, about the personal dynamic them. No, you're right. If it's me telling them, they're like, leave me alone, you know. But if, right, it, if it, I it, told it, them, if it, if they met me at a if they met me at a workshop and I and I shared the organizational triangle with them, they could say, "Oh my god, that's genius!" and it's so simple. We should try that at home. And you would be thinking in the back of the room, "I've been saying
1: this for 20 years, but sure, now it sounds like it's new." Mm-hmm. I've heard that exactly. Yeah, on yeah. certain things with myself. Yep. Yeah, that's hilarious. So, what do people come to you for? Again, is it tax receipts? Does it just? I'm a mess. Help me organize, or is it my business is not systematized? Like, what kind of consulting do you find yourself doing lately?
2: So, there's a fork in the road between B2B business to business and B2C business to consumer work that I do. My first book on stuff your life. When we're talking about clutter, it often is on the B2C side of the fork, right? It's typically I mean, the business began for me with a like a B2B light. These were solopreneurs and entrepreneurs that were coming to me with problems. And I was working in people's homes and I was working in people's offices. And it was primarily around setting up systems, both organizing and decluttering. And as the work grew and I developed both a vocabulary and an expertise, I started to be invited into more business, like larger businesses, bigger than Single person shops or, you know, SMEs, but being invited into companies like the New York Mets or being, or, Goldman Sachs or American Express or the Metropolitan Museum of Art to help them solve larger problems that were both personnel issues around how teams are going to share space and keep track of things, as well as how we could eliminate time productivity bottlenecks and points of friction. So it was a natural evolution as as my work developed, more people and businesses In different ways, we're drawn to, he seems to solve problems effectively, efficiently. He's able to identify these bottlenecks or these points of friction and smooth them out
1: or eliminate them. This could be useful for us in this application. So what do you see the biggest sources of pushback when you're trying to help an organization or a person? Where's the resistance come from? Well, if we're thinking about organizations,
2: it's not unlike the story that we just talked about with your you and your wife and your kids, right? If it's the CEO that thinks these people that work for me are have a problem, I don't have a problem, they have a problem. And it's not, there isn't a culture of innovation or easily adoptability. If there's a culture of blame or resistance and people, they're not aligned with a bigger mission than a paycheck. There's typically resistance to change because people They just want to be able to come and go and not have to really be challenged personally or professionally.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show.
2: So, I mean, I would say that that's probably the, the biggest issue on the b to b side is, for shorthand, we'll just say a less than less than ideal culture, right? A crappy culture, okay. a culture of blame, of recrimination, of passive-aggressive comparisons and competition. On the B2C side, it goes back to shame and uh, trauma, anxiety, stress, overwhelm. It could be some neurodivergencies where maybe there's adhd or other things where some executive functioning in in the ways that we might think about it for neurotypical people there's some challenges grasping concepts or not necessarily grasping the concepts but executing in a neurotypical way and so they've never been invited perhaps to take a set of tools and use them to get similar results but perhaps arranging them differently If that makes sense. Right. I mean, if the sum total of the application of the tools, whether we connect them ABC or ACB or AMF still yields a positive movement towards solution, does it really matter? But if if it's being presented as the only way to do it is ABC, ABC learn ABC, and for whatever reason, connecting the dots that way doesn't make sense or doesn't feel good, there'll be resistance. And they might be trying to hack it themselves, thinking, God, if I could just do A, C, B, I bet I could get the same results. But again, if if there's no support or encouragement to do that, and for lack of a better term, permission, then they'll just sit in the place of nothing works, right? And what, and what we know to be true is when people start to speak in absolutes, their chances are they're telling one of their 200 lies. 200 lies? What's that? Oh, the average adult tells 200 lies a day. A day? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, right, two thirds of them will never come out of your mouth. It's just garbage that we tell ourselves. But a third of them will come out of your mouth. It could be something like, hey, Richard, I'm so sorry to bother you. Now, if I was really sorry to bother you, I wouldn't be bothering you. But I say that as if it means something. And what I really mean is, Richard, whatever you're doing to me is less important than what I want you to be doing. So I'm going to interrupt you and get your attention and bring it to what I want you to be doing in this moment. More than whatever it is that you think you should be doing or want to be doing, I want you to do what I want you to do in this moment. I want your attention. That would be the direct way to say it.
1: (laughs) When you work with people and you accomplish this change, you know, and they let you, they don't fight you to death. Does it last or do they go recidivist and everything falls apart? And they're they're buried in papers or buried in whatever within three months after you leave. Uh, I will say
2: that while there's sometimes, we could even say often, some recidivism, it's not exactly shoots and ladders where they're back to the very beginning of the game. Once, once. Listen, they, I'm
1: not blaming you.
2: Oh like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not feeling challenged. I'm. I'm not. No, no, no. I'm not. I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna break this down for you. Right. Yeah, it's, I would think just. Just before you start, like human nature is probably a huge gravitational
1: force. good.
2: Yeah, it might sometimes be two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, one step back, four steps forward, two steps back, and the baseline keeps elevating. Once these behaviors have been adopted, the techniques employed, it's hard to go back to just throwing your keys on the kitchen counter because if you've worked directly with me or you've spent any time with me, you will literally hear my voice in your head saying, Richard, that's not where your keys go. What are you doing? Put your keys back where they belong. Mm. You'll be able to find them if you put them back where they belong. And right now you're setting yourself up for failure and disappointment. And we both know you don't want that to happen. Eventually, you'll internalize that enough that you'll say it to yourself. What am I doing? This is clearly I was checked out for a minute. I came into the house. The phone was ringing or I had to pee or something was up. And I just threw my keys down. Old, bad behavior. And now that I'm back in my body, I remember, oh, that's not that is that's a recipe for disaster. Go find my keys, put them back where they belong. So the corrective behavior will, it will be easier and easier in that way that habits, once, once the new habit is formed, it will feel weirder to not do it. You might still do it, but it will feel out of joint and you will likely correct your behavior quicker, right? So that even if you backslide, you won't go back as far and your recovery will be quicker, Right. It's yeah, like well, muscle just, memory in the gym, right? I mean, if right. you go to the gym every day or every week and then you take a couple of weeks off, you might not be able to pick up the same pounds that you picked up three or four weeks ago, but it won't be long before
1: you are back where you were and then, you know, going beyond it. Okay. Have you incorporated, uh, is it necessary to incorporate like any Marie Kondo stuff, you know, throwing a lot of stuff away? Where yeah. more more organizi- organizing does the trick?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I find that limiting things to what sparks joy in my life, I would be a minimalist if it was only the things that spark joy in my life. Right. I mean, I've expanded that definition and to be, you know, to be fair to me and to be fair to Marie, who I don't know. Right. But I've been a professional organizer since she was a toddler. So, you know, she has a lot more visibility than I do. But me and many of my colleagues have been doing this work for a lot longer than she has been doing it, which is I mean, it's no shade on her. I mean, clearly she's, she tapped into the zeitgeist and gathered everybody's attention and became a phenomenon, which is awesome. A rising tide lifts all boats, so in no way am I throwing shade on her. And I'm just clarifying, sparking joy is a little narrow for me. I like to think of, does it make my life more comfortable? Does it make my life more convenient? Does it make my life more beautiful? Because my toilet brush... Right, doesn't spark joy. It's very functional and useful, and I would much rather use a toilet brush than stick my hand in the bowl of the toilet, even with a pair of rubber gloves on. So I'm going to keep yeah. the toilet brush. But if you said, like, does that spark
1: joy? I would say no, it does not spark joy. Right, I got you. It'd be funny if you told people I'm a minimalist trying to live, you know, live life to the fullest <laughs> in the maximal way. <laughs> I think of myself as an essentialist. Right, I I
2: like things that again comfort, convenience, or beauty. I have art on the walls in my apartment and I mean it doesn't serve a purpose other than it makes my life richer and engages my imagination and is beautiful but it doesn't, it's not the same as a as a plunger or a
1: blender right? Those are functional tools that live in my home as well. Have you coached people that have become minimalists and does it help them or does it uh, make them unhappy? Have you seen examples of that or have you coached people that are hoarders and they really have a psychological hard time with letting anything go? Oh, yeah. I have worked with, I wouldn't say
2: many, but I've worked with more than a few people who have hoarding tendencies and hoarding disorder. Yes. And again, if they are interested in change, then they can improve. It's there's a degree of pathology i'm not a i'm not a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist so i'm not i can't do clinical work with them in that sense right but i can coach them on behavioral changes they will need additional support from somebody around the pathology cuz that's not my wheelhouse and on the other side for people who want to be minimal, minimalists i mean i have people in my community and in among my students and people who work with me there are there are people who are minimalists aspire to be minimalists it all comes down for me to this idea of is the focus and this is one of those things about Marie Kondo's work is the focus on the stuff or is the focus on you and in my world and in my approach to this I'm interested in changing how you think feel and interact with stuff I'm not as interested in taming the clutter the clutter will get tamed but if you think about it if you don't change if your relationship with things don't doesn't change it's this pair of shoes or that pair of shoes but it's still a pair of shoes that's getting your attention and if we think about in the bigger picture of your life how much time, we're here for a limited amount of time, how much time do you want to spend in a one-sided relationship with an inanimate object rather than in intimate, dynamic relationships with people, with plants, with with companion animals, experiences? in In my experience, in my life, the juice comes from relationships with things, I'll call them things in a reductive way, that reciprocate my affection. So pouring all of my affection into my, you know, my computer desktop or my mobile phone, the phone is not reciprocating my affection. It's not saying, oh, the way that Andrew holds me in his right hand is so tender and gentle. It's I'm so lucky that he brought me
1: home from the iPhone store. It's not happening. Okay. As people go through the process with you, what do you notice about them psychologically? Like, do they reach certain common milestones or do they have points where they just They freak out or they don't like it or they resist it or they, I don't know, like difficult points in the journey or is it pretty smooth?
2: It's similar and not exactly like Elizabeth Kubler Ross's stages of grief, right? It's, there's, I think most people, if we think about a bell curve, there's some resistance, there's an attachment to your own beliefs and your own way of doing things, even if they are inefficient or ineffective, they're still what you know. And as you adopt new behavior, momentum starts to build. I often say failure breeds failure and success breeds success. So the more successful you are in changing your behavior, adopting these new habits, there's momentum that is built up and you you become more enthusiastic of, oh, I actually do see clear surfaces in my home. I do feel better. I'm less stressed out. I'm less anxious. I don't worry as much i know where to find the things that i'm looking for i'm not wasting time this is awesome i want more of it and it tends to build on itself it's so as we think about that bell curve and then on the back side of it as you're descending it, it's things are working, so there's less friction as you're going down the curve. It's like, oh, and I can do it here, and I can do it there, and look at this, and that's even better, and now I can do this, and all of those things that I had been procrastinating on or putting off, I can actually, I have time to dedicate to them, and I, and I have less resistance to it because I have greater both confidence in my own abilities and I have greater competence as
1: well. I, I can feel the sense of, if not mastery, at least proficiency. Okay. So now that you've, uh, you've helped a lot of businesses and people with this, like what's next? Is it just, you know, helping a lot more businesses and people? Were there new things that you're learning that take people to a higher level? Maybe after this initial coaching, there's something else that they need to do? I would say that there are certainly other things that I would like to do as
2: my as the business continues to grow. Some of those, I don't know what they are. Some of it is just about scale, right? I'd like to be, instead of being in rooms talking to a thousand people at a time, I'd like to be on a stage talking to 10 or 15 or 20,000 people at a time, just so that we can impact more people quickly. So part of it is that. And then calling bullshit on busy was a was an outgrowth of Unstuff Your Life. I mean, Unstuff Your Life, I published uh, first in twenty. 20- Ten, It came out and we're just working on the second edition of it now. So that was about clutter. And then I started to see, particularly on the B2B side, this time management thing. And that was the genesis. I didn't. And again, not I'm not throwing shade on my friends and colleagues who produce books every year. I really didn't want to just keep books coming into the marketplace so that I could sell more things. It felt antithetical to who I am. So I wanted to make sure that I had something worthwhile to say before I wrote my next book. And so that it took a while to come out with calling bullshit on busy. And that really addresses the eight deadly time thieves as I've experienced them, particularly in the B2B world. And that is overcommitting, interruptions poor planning, multitasking, email, meetings, social media, and procrastination. And so those are the most common issues or causes of lost time and fractured productivity. So I wanted to take those on because I was recognizing patterns that interruptions is probably the worst offender and procrastination is probably the most personal piece of narrative that we
1: tell ourselves that keeps us from doing the things that we say is important yeah. okay so you have a program that help uh, executives and and other people through these you know to minimize these the effects of the eight time wasters in their life
2: yeah i have the book and i also have a, like a training that i do for businesses around this and i would like to so when we think about the growth of the business besides just scaling up larger is really being able to develop more enterprise level solutions on the B2B side to really address culture. Because again, interruptions is typically a culture problem.
1: Yeah. I remember working for Intel and Motorola and I was, you know, I was the new guy, but when I'd go to talk to my boss, people would come in and interrupt him. Sometimes I'd sit there for like 20 minutes. It was terrible and he didn't stop any of it. And so I pretty much stopped going to see him because there was no point. I was like totally disrespected. I would just sit there and had to take it while people came in and just talked about garbage and he filtered nobody. In.
2: Right. Yeah. And so being able to shift that culture so that, I mean, the best thing that he could have, other than saying not now because I'm meeting with Richard, could have been, I can give you five minutes and I'm setting a timer. And when the timer goes off, it's like, you're done. So if we need to keep, if we need to keep talking, I need to get back to Richard. If we need to
1: keep talking more than we just did, you'll need to make an appointment. Yeah, they would have been nice, but... Yeah. So I remember I was scarred by this years ago. Yeah. So what, uh, just a couple of facts or interesting, uh, you know, statistics around time wasting average time or average amount of time that people you coach waste a day and how much does it decrease and, you know, what do they do with this newfound productivity?
2: Well, let's talk about what they do with the newfound productivity and then we can go back and pull out some stats. Typically they will either, <laughs> they will either do more work, which isn't always optimal or they will start to... I don't believe... I mean, it's not that I don't believe it like I don't believe in Santa Claus, but I don't believe in work-life balance because I think that the idea of perching yourself perfectly on a fulcrum between work and life seems an impossible place to put yourself in, and nothing is static in life. So that seems to be a fool's errand to me to try to achieve perfect life-work balance. If you spend too much time working, and we can buy you back some time. It's nice for you to be able to distribute that towards your personal life and have less stress and be able to be present for your family, for your friends, for your social activities without having something gnawing on the back of your consciousness saying, but this is all stolen time. This is borrowed time. We're, we're just creating more time debt for ourselves. So we're enjoying this. but part of us is not even present for it because we know that we're going to have to pay back this time later to get caught up. So that's not how we want it to be, right? We want it to be that when this time is rea- reapplied or redistributed, it gets to go where it wants to go without any strings attached to it or any narrative attached to it. it it's fully You're fully present for whatever you're doing in the moment. You, you don't have part of your brain keeping, keeping score
1: keeping count. Okay. And then uh, how much time do your coaches win back? on average the target is four to ten hours a week that's significant it's a lot that can get you work out three times a week that could do all kinds of stuff you know yeah the goal is at least an hour a day and what do you do you have specific things that uh, you suggest these people fill that time with or do you leave it to them or do you like workshop with them you know hey if we get you back this hour a day what are you gonna do with it certainly that is a part of the
2: work so that they have something to look forward to So we certainly want to brainstorm when you get some free time, how are you going to use it so that, again, it doesn't just get... There are times when it's appropriate for it to be reinvested into your work, but there are other times when that just is, again, it's a slightly unconscious or possibly it's a lazy choice to just, well, I'll just work more.
1: Well, what do people choose, you know, left to their own devices? Do they... Do a lot of them choose work or do they sleep in an hour or like what do they do at the time? They
2: do more volunteer work. They spend more time with their kids, more time with their partner. They pick up hobbies or activities. I I don't really know what a hobby is, but they pick up activities that maybe they have neglected. That could be knitting. That could be painting. It could be music. It could be athletics. Could be golfing, right? Could be tennis. Could be cycling, yoga. But they start to reintegrate things that they loved doing at one time, and time, scarcity of time crowded out. It wasn't that they were any less interested in these activities, but other things got in in front of them, and it was relatively easy in that way of a frog boiling, right? It was relatively easy in the beginning to push it off and tell yourself one of your 200 lies. Oh, as soon as I get some time, I'll go back to this. And then that distance just grew and grew and grew until it felt like it was an insurmountable hurdle to get back into doing something. So part of what they do is find their way back and they start to dismantle that hurdle or that, you know, that mountain of resistance or story that there isn't enough time or this would be too hard to pick up again so that they can actually start to find their way back into those kinds of activities.
1: Mm. Um, Have you run into people that have too much free time and that's why they're a mess? I would say they they have too much unstructured time. I don't know if
2: I would frame it that way. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be overly semantic about it. Right. But I think if money is not an obstacle to somebody being able to do whatever they want to do so that they have a certain amount of time, freedom and privilege to choose what they want to do and they are disconnected from their values, they might be more idle than they would want to be it's i mean some people i think are perhaps not very curious about what's going on in the world or they're not particularly curious about much that's a different i don't want to necessarily call it an ailment but it's a different condition i think if you have many interests and because nothing is overly compelling you might be immobile because you can't You don't know how to prioritize. You're not prioritizing because there's a limited amount of time. You're prioritizing because you want to do something that has high value impact for you rather than something that doesn't, but you don't necessarily have a system or a method for evaluating, I have all this time, should I spend it doing this or should I spend it doing that? And if I spend it doing this, how much time should I spend on that before I pivot to this? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, okay, got it. What are some resources for listeners? And let's say they're intrigued by what you're saying. They want help. Uh, what's the What should their first or second step be? It, head to my website,
2: probably, to andrewmellon.com. Mellon is M-E-L-L-E-N. And there's ways to get in touch with me there. You can always send an email to hello at So I would send them there. And then from there, they could travel to, they could pick up one, a copy of one of my books. They could travel to my YouTube channel. They can follow me on social media. They could sign up for one of our programs. We have one-off classes that are topic-specific, like a photos organizing class. We have a calling bullshit on busy time management class so they could take a drip delivered class or they could take a live we teach our three main programs de-stress your mess challenge unstuff your life system and your next big thing all of those programs are taught live by me or me and some coaches or some coaches depending on the configuration of the class and what we have found is that the live instruction provides both clear instruction and also a degree of accountability that people who are learning new behaviors would benefit from. So a one-off class, a 90-minute class that you would watch a video of and then do the homework is one thing. But if you're trying to actually build some new behavior, I have found that live instruction provides a degree of accountability so that you you have a greater Incentive to do the work and get the results. You can't, you that can't. Makes you, sense. So, yeah. So, so that's how that's where I would send people AndrewMellon.com, the YouTube channel. Send an email to hello at AndrewMellon.com and we can figure out how we can support you or, you know, you and your business, you and your family.
1: Well, very good. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click
0: the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.